All right. Yes, no staff. 29 No, we're going to move beyond that today. <laughs> Let me pray before we get started. <laughs> Father, we uh, thank you so much for your, your blessing, Lord. And we just ask you to help our minds and our hearts be attentive to your word because it's so rich and has so much for us. Even Acts 20, 20, 29, and 30. <laughs> verses I love. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So we have been camped on verses 29 and 30 of Acts chapter 20 for several weeks. And there's a reason for that, I hope. And I know some of you did not like wading into the murky waters. But you have to do it every now and then. To be faithful to the admonition. And uh, you know, I'm, your elders here have an obligation to guard the flock. I mean, that's just absolutely essential. And so we had to cover some areas that are common in the world today that are attacking the faith from inside. And we needed to talk about that stuff. So Paul says in Acts 20:28 20, that the Holy Spirit has actually given us that specific task to protect the flock. And he drives that home by reminding us that the church was purchased with the blood of God. So that's how serious it is. And that's why we took our time with all of that. And you know that makes the church infinitely valuable that it was purchased with the blood of God. And that's just an amazing thing. And it makes essential to defend her. I mean even aggressively defend her. And so we have to do that. And I know some people think you shouldn't throw stones and all of that stuff but Accurately throwing stones at a high rate of velocity toward wolves is exactly how shepherds protect their flock. I mean when they write that in the Bible that's what they're thinking about. And that's how David was skilled enough to bring down that giant guy. It's because he practiced on wolves a, a, a lot. So he was a protector of the flock. So in Paul's day that's what the image would immediately come to mind of protecting the flock would be that very thing, hurling stones. So we used our slingshot a little bit the last couple of weeks. But all of church history has been a relentless uh, series of wolf attacks. And there always have been those and there always will be. Satan, Satan has a large department of minions, not the guys with the little goggles, but um, <laughs> his demonic powers. And they work full time on ways to corrupt the church of Jesus Christ. And they're really good at it. In fact, I think it's called the Bureau of Church Subversion. And it's a whole department down there. <laughs> the BCS department. Bureau of Church Subversion. But anyway it's our job to stand in the gap and not, not let them in. And we do that by following Paul's exhortation there in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves first and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So today we're going to move beyond those verses and we're going to wrap up uh, chapter 20. But I want to kind of walk you back through what he's been doing and kind of how because it's actually been several weeks since we really looked at this total passage. So um, the structure of the way he talked to the Ephesian elders. And remember he's talking to church leaders, the Ephesian elders. That's the audience here. So he started with himself as an example. Back up in verse 19, reminding them of what he did with them, among them for three years. Uh, he said he was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Then verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget what he solemnly testified 
repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way of salvation right there in one sentence. So simple. Then in verse 22 through 25 he tells us what his plans are and he's going to go to Jerusalem. But there's a hitch everywhere he goes prophets of God have warned him in verse 23 there that bonds and afflictions await me he says. But he says that doesn't trouble him verse 24. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus and then he says again to solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So never forget that description either of his ministry to solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That's what we're all about. Then in verse 25 he says this is the last time you're going to see me in person and then he starts the warnings about wolves which will be uh, we've been talking about for several weeks. In verse 26 and verse 27 he declares his innocence. Uh, He says if anything goes wrong here in Ephesus after I'm gone it's not going to be on me because I've told you everything you need to know. He calls it the whole purpose of God there. So they've had a three year course in Christianity with him personally there. A full systematic theology if you will of Christian beliefs, the doctrines of grace, how the old covenant relates to the new covenant, what the future holds, what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't and how you live the Christian life. He's covered everything, everything they need to know and he's lived it before them. And then we have the passage that we've been camping on in verse 28, be on guard because the wolves are coming and then we're going to pick it up then at verse 31 today and here in verse 31 he kind of repeats uh, with different words the exhortation of verse 28 and he starts with the word therefore because these wolves will come in and they may arise from within so he says be on the alert and then again he asks them to remember remember he's saying remember how it was when I was with you think back For a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He wants them to remember that. I'm leaving but you're going to have me in memory and don't let what you remember slip away from you. Don't let it get away from you. If you had, if you as a Christian had a good mentor in your Christian walk when you started walking with the Lord if somebody guided you and helped you along the way maybe several people I'll bet you remember them. I sure do. I I remember with Thanksgiving the people who showed me the way and helped me to learn to stand on my own as a Christian believer and they made sure that I was on the narrow path that I was teachable that I learned how to discern what's true and what's not true what's right and what's wrong that I had sound doctrine especially how to interpret the Bible properly they made sure I learned to pray for other people they were made absolutely sure that I was sensitive about my own sinfulness and that I knew what repentance was and how to do it and I don't remember every moment of all of that teaching but I do remember that they were there and and once you're on that narrow path you you start to grow if you have that right foundation and I remember some very specific moments but not that many I mean it's been a long time I was a young little whippersnapper in those days (laughs) but what I did was I, I took those things to heart and and they became a part of who I am the things they told me so for the Ephesian elders it's very fresh I mean Paul's been there with them for three years day and night he says pouring himself into these 
new leaders. So why is he reminding them of this? Why, why remind them of this? I mean aren't they mature Christians and ready to go? Well there's always a danger of drifting and a danger of becoming careless, a danger of forgetting, a, a danger of routine I guess, of things kind of becoming routine and uh, losing the, the fire. And uh, we see that, we, we actually see that in a secular way in, in our sort of national life today, you know, as a, as a nation. Other people fought and built and created this amazing country we have and this system of government that we have. And now we're pulling all of their statues down, you know. It's just really interesting. We live on what they built and on the wisdom that they had to create a system of government that's lasted this long that has some level of justice and, um, th- that you, and freedom within it, you know, that you can speak your mind and have your say and vote and all of that kind of stuff. And we don't think they were wise anymore. And so we, we uh, look at their faults instead of what they gave us. And we don't even think about the blood they shed to preserve it. And that can happen in churches too as the years go by. Things become routine and overly familiar and life goes on and other things take precedence and new ideas come along and maybe they're better and all of that kind of a thing. So church life, church life does get messy sometimes, right? And the flesh takes over in response to situations and relationship issues and things like that and praying kind of becomes perfunctory or we don't do it at all and the word of God is, is like revered but not read and all of those kind of things start to happen over time and he's worried about them. So he says I admonished you with tears because it's up to them now and they're, they're holding the church in their hands and they're responsible for it. So he says I, I with tears I, I poured myself into you. And he's emotional about it. Why well, get so emotional? Because he loves Christ and he loves the church of Christ and he loves the people of God. And he has a tender heart for people and for the well-being of their souls. And So he's, he's going to ask those questions. Are, are you, you need to make sure that people are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, he says. You guys need to make sure you're walking with Christ and that they're walking with Christ. That's your job to do that. And he earnestly and passionately just impresses on them the need to protect the gospel. Because if that foundation crumbles, if you lose the gospel, everything's lost. And we've seen, we've been talking about how that happens in the last few weeks. That's why we've had wolf lessons. (laughs) But it's all too easy to lose the centrality of the gospel. And remember, it was already happening in churches that Paul had planted. The church in Corinth was a mess with false teachers, super apostles coming in. The Galatian churches were getting caught up in Judaistic legalism and changing the gospel and he had to write the book of Galatians and he was pretty mad when he wrote it. It's too easy for that to happen. So verse 31 is really a a one sentence description of Paul's ministry. So now we're moving past verse 30. (laughs) Verse 31. Be on the alert remembering that day and night for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. There it is. Now that's a one sentence version. If you you turned over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 you can see a a long paragraph version. I'm going to read it for you. You can just listen if you want to. But 1 1 Thessalonians um, 2.5 Paul describes his ministry to them this way. And this is the way he always did it. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, 
but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he reminds them of his tears, the the tears that he shed with these great truths of Christianity and the Christian life and sharing it with them. That's the expanded version of how Paul ministered in uh, Acts 2031 is the mini version of that same thing but it's the same thing that's how he was in Ephesus that's how he was in Thessalonica that's how he was in Philippi that's how he was everywhere that's how he did it so now in verse 32 he says and now so he's coming to his conclusion of his talk with them this is his last official word I guess you could say so verse 32 is really a key sentence here in this whole passage now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So that word translated commend, you know that word itself like it literally means like to place before, like like a waiter bringing you your dinner and placing it before you, but it also means to entrust into somebody's hands and that's what he's talking about here of course. He's commending something into their hands. What is it? The word of his grace, the word of his grace. So Paul's final charge, the last word, the highest thing he leaves with them is the word of God's grace, the gospel of grace, the gospel of pure grace, the great truth that we can add nothing to what God has already done to save us. He's trusting them with that. Now that's just not something Paul threw in there because that's kind of Christian talk, you know. Grace is the central idea of the Christian life. Just like Christ is the central person of the Christian faith, grace is the central reality of the life that we live as Christians. That's why grace is one of the great themes of the book of Acts. Maybe the greatest theme of the book of Acts. You think of it as a missions book, but it's really about grace. And we've kind of followed it before, so I'm going to do it again. Why would you do that? Because you might forget, and I'm going to make sure you remember. So back in Acts chapter 13 when Paul's ministry started we have Paul's, it's got a long sermon in it and Acts has a lot of sermons in it but that was his sort of model sermon to the Jews and we went through that in detail when we were there. But it's it's our example of how Paul actually preached. But after the sermon in verse uh, 43 of chapter 13 it says, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up and many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them were doing what? Urging them to continue in the grace of God. That's what they were doing. Ooh, that's interesting. And that sets the tone 
for Paul's whole ministry. Then in the next chapter, chapter 14 verse 3, it describes how God used miracles to support that message through the apostles. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace. What, see that's, how, that's the word they use for gospel. That, that's what, Luke loves that phrase. The word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So they were testifying to the word of God's grace. That's what they were preaching. Verse 26 of that chapter, chapter 14, they return home to their sending church, Antioch of Syria, from which Luke says, quote, they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So Antioch had commended Paul and Barnabas to the grace of God when they sent them out. They took the message of the grace of God everywhere they went. That's what they proclaimed. And all that is meant to take you up to Acts chapter 15 where they have the great Jerusalem council and I don't know how many times I brought it up but not enough. <laughs> I'll bring it up again. But that's Acts 15:11, where Peter gets up and the very last words Peter speaks in the book of Acts. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that the Gentiles also are. Wayne you keep mentioning that. Yeah, I don't want you to forget. We are saved by the grace of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus, as Peter puts it there. So I repeat those things on purpose so it's going to stay with you. And, and that statement really is the theological heart of the book of Acts, what Peter says right there. That's his final words. And then I will add Acts chapter 15 verse 40 where um, after Paul and Barnabas kind of have their little split and go their separate, way, separate ways. Paul took Silas on the mission field and it says, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. <coughs> See how it says that? It just keeps coming back to that. It doesn't say, and they sent them on the mission field. They commended them to the grace of the Lord. The grace of God. The word of his grace. The grace of God. The grace of the Lord. Those are all the phrases that are showing up here. And then here then in Acts chapter 20, years later from all of that, Paul is commending to the chosen leaders of the church, the Ephesian elders, the men he will never see again, the word of his grace. He's commending to them the word of his grace. There's definitely a thing that Luke is doing here <laughs> with that constant use of that kind of phrasing. He's telling every pastor at all times and in all places that that's what they have to do and that's what they have to protect and that's what they have to proclaim. Guard it and let it do it work in their lives and in the lives of their people, the grace of God. Verse 32 again, I'm going to read it one more time. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So what is God's grace? It's his unmerited favor undeserved. That's the definition. And that inheritance is, is our salvation that he mentions there. So obviously we're saved by grace. He loves us with this redeeming love even though we don't deserve it at all. It's undeserved. But we're saved by grace. In fact let, let's go to um, Romans chapter 5 for a moment. Just to kind of remind you about how pathetic you are <laughs> without grace. How pathetic I am. Yeah, we need a good reminder now and then, don't we? 
So Romans is the book of salvation and that particular chapter begins with these words. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace with God. He's not angry with us anymore. There's no wrath targeting us because we have peace with him because we're justified by faith in him. And that peace comes because through faith in Christ we are, are accounted as righteous. The righteousness of Christ is seen as ours. Well what did I do to merit that? Nothing. <laughs> you are unworthy of that. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2 through whom also through Christ we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So grace awakens us, we put our faith in Christ and now we're standing in grace. That's our Christian life right there. From now on that's where we stand. We're standing in the grace of God. Having faith in Christ shows us that we are recipients of God's grace and we're able to stand before our great and holy God without fear because of his grace it's so rich and the salvation is so real and firm and complete. So and then verse 6 he rescues us when we were helpless and it says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly? Yes the ungodly he died for. Then look at verse 8 but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. So he didn't see something worthwhile in me and say oh I think I'll save him he's so much better. He probably thought he's so much worse that my grace will really shine in him. But he saved us in our lost condition. Dead. Dead to his glory. Dead to his goodness. We didn't have a relationship with him. Didn't care. Ungodly. Ungodly sinners. And, but he took pity on us. And loved us and died. Died for us. That's not a small thing. So we are not like innocently mistaken about things. Our, our whole nature is corrupted and we are in a real sense. In a real sense we're, we're born into the enemy camp. God's enemy's camp. And we're raised in it and that's where our loyalty is to the enemy of God. You know Satan told Eve you will be like God knowing good and evil. You brought that up in Sunday school this morning. And um, we bit the apple if you will through her and that brings God's wrath justly down on our heads. So Romans 5 verse 9 much more than even better than all of what I just told you having been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. So God's love seeks reconciliation with his enemies. That's another word used to describe us here. It's, it's just that simple. So in Christ he's shouldering the debt of our sin himself. That's the gospel of grace. That's the word of his grace that he did that. All of this. Why does Paul talk about God and the word of his grace? in Acts chapter 20 verse 32. Well he said that God and the words of his grace are able to build you up 
and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So inheritance is eternal life, that's pretty clear. But he says something else that's really interesting, God in the word of his grace is able, that's the word dunamis which means um, power, he has the power to build you up. Grace builds you up. So it gives us eternal life but it builds us up. It can build us into the kind of men and women that God wants us to be. That's a wonderful thing that grace does. This unmerited favor. So we are, uh, we are actually a construction project. You guys have been working out there? This is a different kind of construction project. Building us up in the word of grace. We talked a couple of weeks ago about people deconstructing. Grace constructs, doesn't deconstruct. Deconstructing is tearing down your faith, dismantling people's faith. And there's people out there whose job it is to tear down your faith. That's how they see their purpose in life. Those are the wolves. But the word of his grace is a builder. That's why you have to cling to the word of grace. Grace takes us and it matures us, it builds us, it keeps us growing in Christ. And when the Lord opens the heart and we repent and we believe in Jesus, put our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, all kinds of amazing things start to happen. Things we used to like, we suddenly want to turn away from. Other things we had little interest in and they become really fascinating now. And we're drawn to them and we start having holy affections, our, our affections, our loves um, value things that we didn't used to value and we treasure them now. We changed. And we realize in all of that that we are completely unworthy of God's love. And that humbles us and that humility changes us. The word of grace is freedom actually. It's freedom from our past, it's freedom from whatever we were tied to before, it's freedom from guilt, it's freedom from wrong thinking, it's freedom from wrong belief systems. And even things that we think in the deepest recesses of our hearts that are wrong, grace reaches there too and starts to change those things. It's not a freedom to do what we want, it's, it's a freedom to grow closer and closer to the Savior, to serve Him well, to do what He wants, to love what He loves. So moving forward for a Christian means living in the gospel, the word of God's grace all the time. So God the creator, God the holy one, God the judge of all creatures, he loved me unto death. Literally, me, the sinner, ungodly, the enemy, and I don't deserve it. Not one bit do I deserve it. Not one bit do I deserve it. How can one so holy and so good love someone that's so sinful? Grace, grace, God is gracious. So when he opens my heart to that, then I'm, I'm born again to a, a whole new understanding of everything. I see myself, my wretchedness, my wrong expectations, my disappointments. All of that I see in a whole different light as a grateful servant of him. And I don't need to win. I don't need to punish my enemies. I'm not superior to them. I'm a sinner worthy of death and God loves me and he put me into his service so now my whole relationship to the world is as his servant to be 
an arm of his grace and love to other people that are lost. The more I grasp that, the better the building process will be and the less painless. Because <laughs> he's going to build. So my life can be built in a whole new way. If we lose sight of the word of God's grace, the building process slows down. And if it stops, it's just tragic. Milton Vincent's little book, we've been, we saw him the other day, so we've been thinking about him, his little book, The Gospel Primer, which uh, is just a treasure, a small little book. He describes how the gospel of grace changes us. I just want to read a couple paragraphs from that. He says, every time I deliberately disobey a command of God, it's because I am in that moment doubtful as to God's true intentions in giving me that command. Does he really have my best interests at heart? Or is he withholding something from me that I would be better off having? Such questions, whether asked or not, lie underneath every act of disobedience. However, the gospel changes my view of God's commandments and that it helps me to see the heart of the person from whom those commandments come. When I begin my train of thought with the gospel, I realize that if God loved me enough to sacrifice his son's life for me, then he must be guided by that same love when he speaks his commandments to me. Viewing God's commands and prohibitions in this light, I can see them for what they really are. Friendly signposts from a heavenly father who is seeking to love me through each directive so that I might experience his very fullness forever. And then he says, the gospel reveals to me the breathtaking glory and the loveliness of God and in so doing it lures my heart away from love of self and leaves me enthralled by him instead. The more I behold God's glory in the gospel, the more lovely he appears to me. And the more lovely he appears, the more self fades into the background like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. Preaching the gospel to myself every day reminds me of God's astounding love for me and also his infinite worthiness to be loved by me above all else. These reminders deliver a one-two punch to my innate self-absorption and leave me increasingly absorbed with Christ and with God's ultimate plan to gather together all heavenly and earthly things to him. Nobody says it better than Brother Milton so I had to read that for you. But what he's describing there is how the word of grace builds us up. How it changes us. How it makes us different people. Well let's finish Acts chapter 20. It's, it's so interesting to me that after this final commend, commend, commending of grace to the, the Ephesian elders, Paul starts talking about money again. And he's not asking for a donation. <laughs> you know why he does this? If you, if you weren't here last week, that explains it. <laughs> but um, come to get last week's sermon. But money corrupts. And Paul is using himself as an example for these church leaders. Remember he's talking to church leaders. Verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold. I have coveted no one's silver or gold. He's saying that so they won't. It's really interesting because in Romans chapter 7, Paul kind of walks through his conversion and he's talking about the commandments. And he kind of thought he'd kept the commandments until he got to the last one which is thou shalt not covet. And he says that one killed me. Because he was a coveted. And here he, he, a coveter. And here he is years and years later 
saying, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Clothes were a big deal in those days. It was, clothes were expensive. He's a changed man because the word of God's grace transformed him and now he's a servant of God and that stuff doesn't matter anymore. So he can let that go. That's not a battle for him at this point. Why? Because he lives in the word of God's grace. Grace has built a new man there. And we know that coveting money and the toys of the rich has sunk many a preacher over the years. Never more than today where it's congregations are glad to see pastors living in billion dollar homes and well that's a slight exaggeration but not much. And uh, you know, oh he earned it, he earned it, he should be super rich. But the born again Paul not only didn't covet, he worked. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Did you notice when I read the passage from 1 Thessalonians 2 he said the same thing to them? You guys remember that I worked with my own hands. He, ha- he says in the Bible, he says, I had the right to be supported financially, but I gave up that right from any church I was working with at the time. So he might get a gift from the Philippian church, for example, to help support him and stuff. But when he was with a certain group, bringing the gospel, so there couldn't be anything ever said that he was in it for the money. He never did that. He made tents and sold them. That's what he did. So they could, nobody could question that. Working was a daily reminder that Christ would have him serve. So he says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Verse 34, tent making. Verse 35, and everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So grace replaced a sin, the sin of coveting. Replaced it with love and with giving. That's how it built Paul up into a new man. I should point out something rare about that verse there. Verse 35, Paul quotes a saying of Jesus that is not in the Gospels. It's not, it's not recorded in the Gospels. So where, where, how did he know? He didn't know. Well, you know, Paul hung out with the Apostles too. In fact, in Acts, in, not Acts, Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, he mentions that he had a discussion with the Apostles and they had advised him, they had counseled him, like Peter and James and those guys, they had said, we want you to remember the poor. And he said, that's just what I wanted to hear because that's where my heart is too. And I'm sure in that conversation they said, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give and to receive. Even though that didn't end up in a gospel, he would have, he found out about that, that saying. So it ended up in his letter, so we would know. And, and Luke's, Luke wanted us to know. That's just a fun fact there. But the great truth here is that church leaders have to be free of the love of money. And I'm not going to belabor it today because I addressed it quite a bit recently, but it's an essential requirement of church leadership that they don't covet riches. And if they do, they're not qualified. Well, the chapter closes with a very emotional farewell. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. 
grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. It's really hard to see co-laborers and the gospel go off somewhere else and you might not see them again. We've dealt with that here recently too much I think. We found that out how tearful that can be. But there's a lot more to be done and Paul is about to get in some very serious trouble. Again? Yes. That's for next week. (laughs) Next week, okay. Let's pray. Oh great God, you have saved us by grace. You build us up in grace. Let the security that we have in your love free us from self and pride. May your love overflow into a giving heart. May you set our hearts free to be channels of your grace to everyone around us. This we ask in the name of our Savior who purchased us with his blood. Amen. Amen.